Not stuck in traffic jams, yes. Chelmsford, A12, not a good combination. Have you ever had one of those weeks? <laughs> Obviously, yes. Have you ever had one of those days? Yesterday was a day when I swear, if someone had thought, how many ways can we wind up Pat on a checklist, I think I probably reached about 47 of them, you know, <laughs> all day long. And my husband, bless his heart, comes home, how was your day? <laughs> and he sat there with a coffee as I went through the litany. And do you know what his comment was? Not, there, there, darling, you'll be fine, but goodness, you're going to be in for a great morning tomorrow. <laughs> okay. I love this guy, and you know why. Okay. Today is the day when we move into 2 Samuel. Now, I remember that I gave you as homework first 10 chapters, yes? yes. I'm going to be a bit sneaky and I'm going to add a few more on the end, but don't worry, I'll take you through it. We will be absolutely fine. Don't forget the just one thing. Hopefully it won't be as long as last week. And well done for those of you who were present and have come back. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. In 2 Samuel, we now move on to some very, very interesting characters. And in the first few chapters, I'm sure you found, it can be a bit tricky to keep track of who's who and where's where, yes? Oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Okay. The first thing to remember, uh, for the first time I will use a flip chart, I hope you can all see it, I'll try and make it quite clear. We've had Saul, yeah, has gone meteoric rise up, he didn't really want to be king, but he is king and he's going up and up and up, yeah? Then, tragically, he's coming down, but at the same time, as he's coming down, we have David going up, right? So every time you see a McDonald's sign, you're going to remember the early kings. He's going up, right? We are currently sort of at this point here. And we're going to be looking a bit more at this, but we're going to be arriving here later on this morning. Two key people I just want you to remember. In your notes, there's a chart of quite a few of them. But for Saul, I want you to remember the name. Sorry, I'm feeding back to Richard. Hang on. Abner. Yeah? If you've done your homework, you'll have known that name. And the equivalent on David's side is Joab. I'm only writing them down because they are key individuals, and you'll need to keep those two in mind. Now, if you remember, right at the end of last week's session, at the end of 1 Samuel, we have the very tragic news of the death of two people. So, do you remember who they were? Saul and Jonathan. So let's just nip into chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Very interesting verses. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating who? Remember those people? And stayed in Ziglag. 
That was his hometown, remember? Where his wives had been kidnapped and they'd sorted that out. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I've come from the Israelite camp. Uh, Just to remind you that Israel and Judah are two separate things at this time, okay? And David is nearing Judah. What happened, David asked, tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle, many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Oh, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. And when he turned round and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? And a Malachite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he'd fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. This guy has obviously not read chapter 31 of the previous book. Because that clearly tells us that Saul fell on his own sword because he did not want an enemy to kill him. So what's this guy doing? Lying. Trying to get favour with David. Oh my word. David is absolutely distraught. He's distraught that his best friend Jonathan has died, yes? But he's also distraught that his enemy Saul has died. What does David do with this man? David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening. So they're crying all day, not eating anything. For Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because had fallen. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? Oh, I'm the son of an, a- an alien, an Amalekite. Well, that's, that's going to be a good way to introduce himself to David, isn't it? David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Oh, you should have been scared. You should have been scared. David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. It is an awesome thing to inflict any damage on those that God has anointed. But it's interesting to note that David is now ordering other people to do the deed. Yes? Did you spot that? He ordered his servants to actually kill this man. And he says at the end of the chapter how the mighty have fallen. It's become a phrase that we often use and I'm afraid this week in politics (laughs) oh yes keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Um, but it's an interesting phrase isn't it because David is clearly giving honour to Saul isn't he not just Jonathan 
but Saul as well, how the mighty have fallen. I just want to take a few moments to run something past you, though, because if Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead, who was firstborn would have been likely to take over possibly from Saul, even though there's no hereditary monarchy, there still rules the firstborn. Um, I wonder if David needs to think about his children. Yeah? Obviously, when you've lost a father and son, it's natural to think of your children. But David had quite a few to choose from. In fact, there were 19 of them. Yeah? You think you've got problems with your kids. Try having 19 boys. Whoa. However, they were born in different places. We're going to hear a little bit more about Hebron and Jerusalem a bit later on. But I've highlighted three of the, sorry, four of the key sons. Amnon was his firstborn. Absalom is going to play a major part in the next two sessions, as is Adonijah. Daniel, the only thing we know about him is his name in the list. So potentially he didn't last very long. And then when David moves over to Jerusalem, he's got more, because he's got quite a few wives, you understand. It's a bit like the king and I, really, isn't it? Um, and then his tenth son was Solomon. So by any rule of math, Solomon should not have had a look in, should he? No. Okay. So bear those in mind. The other thing to remember is that they technically had 20 children. But when David and Bathsheba had a son, that son only lived seven days and is not mentioned by name. It's almost as if he's completely out of the picture. But when we get there, we'll see how sad that was. Remember, the nation does not expect a son to succeed his father as king. You got that? Good, 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 good. Now, oh yeah. Remember I said that there was a marked divide between Judah in the south of the country and Israel in the north. Judah was a very big tribe. Israel was made up of all the rest. And there was a real split. And, you know, who's going to be king? And is it only going to be king of one bit versus the other? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. David moves to Hebron from where he's been in Ziglag. And he's crowned king of Judah. But dear old Abner, who is Saul's commander, still has a role even though his boss is now dead, decides to crown, there's a lovely name for you, if you've got any little boys in the family before christening, that's a great name, Ish-bosheth. And he is crowned by Abner, king of all Israel. Here we go. Chapter 2. Abner made him, that's Ishbosheth, king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. And Ishbosheth's son of Saul was how old? 40 years old when he became king over Israel. And he reigned two years. Not a long reign. Yeah? But the house of Judah followed David. Now, If you can see that, 
Can you all grab that? Right, so David now is crowned king of Judah at Hebron. This is, this is the south, this is Judah. Ishbosheth is crowned king. Sorry, that should be Israel. I beg your pardon. Done it again, haven't I? Ishbosheth is king of Israel up here. And eventually, David is going to relocate to Jerusalem, which at that point was called Zion. You may have heard the Zionites. Zion is actually technically a part of what we now know as Jerusalem. So you've now got two kings at the same time. But there is massive jealousy between these two now. Throughout history, there are men who have been known as the kingmakers. And that's what they thought they were. Massive, massive jealousy between the two. Let's move over to chapter 3. I want you to pick up something. Verse 6. Listen to the political shenanigans going on here. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Bearing in mind that Saul is now dead. Yes. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aya, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, and he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? In other words, am I a traitor? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman. Interesting. He has neither confirmed nor denied it, has he? No, okay. May God do with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah. From Dan to Beersheba, north to south. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid. Abner's showing some metal here saying, if you're going to accuse me of that, I'm going to switch sides. Oh! And Ishbosheth has now been crowned by this guy, but obviously things are going bad between them. Verse 12. Abner sent messages on his, messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? It's all about territory, isn't it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Abner obviously thought that he had that power. Yeah? Good, says David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come. What's going on? He appears to switch sides suddenly. But Michael, do you remember Michael? We've already come across her. She's been previously married to David as a reward for his bravery. Do you remember the 200 foreskins? Yeah. But in one of his jealous rages at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul has taken her away and forced her to marry a poor man called Paltiel. P-A-L-T-I-E-L. So she's basically out of the question. So what is David doing? He wants her returned. Now, it could be he genuinely loved her. Though if you go back into the early part of 1 Samuel 6, 
uh, I'm not so sure about that. Or he may think that marriage, or technically remarriage, might be politically a good idea, particularly if he wants to rule all Israel. So what happens? Ishbosheth agrees, but he doesn't realize that Abner is in danger because of this, which side is he on? Now, eventually, tragically, and you'll read the story in 2 Samuel 3, Joab engineers it so that he kills Abner, gets rid of him. Now, there's no love lost between these two, partly because there's been a blood feud between them. I'm sure you remember the story. And we read in 2 Samuel 3.30, Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the Battle of Gibeon. So it's a tit for tat, isn't it? It's not right, but it's how it was. That's how awful it was between these two commanders. Interestingly, the end of verse three, uh, chapter 3, Where are we? Verse 26. Joab left David and sent messages after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. David did not know it. That's an important little phrase here. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway, as though to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Look at this, verse 28. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner. May his blood fall upon the head of Joab and his father's house. Verse 31. David said to Joab and all the people, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. What is David doing? He's mourning the loss of his enemies. Now, in one sense, you could say that's an act of grace. In another sense, it's really weird. And maybe it's something we need to consider a little bit later on. First point to ponder, how do you trust the deputies? Saul and David had both put a huge amount of trust in Abner and Joab. But what are they actually doing? Are they responsible deputies? And I think in life, we're often called upon to work with people in a deputizing role. Or you may yourself be a deputy to somebody else. The power play games are always tricky. You've got to have a lot of trust. And I don't think there was a huge amount of trust between these people. Now, when David got others to do his work, is he avoiding responsibility? No? Possibly, in hindsight. But then we don't know. It could just be that he's being king and letting his deputies do the work. Are they the actions of a king? Ooh. That's a tough one, isn't it? Could they be interpreted in a different way? And when we're talking about kingship principles and leadership principles, everything is down to interpretation. It's not what you do, but how what you do is interpreted. That is absolutely key. Not what you do, 
but how people interpret what they think you mean by what you've done. Always a problem. Now, we read later, that remember, Ishbosheth is still technically king of Israel. Chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now, Saul's son, had, that's Ishbosheth, had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Barna, and the other Recap. Recap? Recap, I think. They were sons of Rimon the Beer. There. Okay. This form. This is interesting. We're introduced to somebody who we'll find out more about later on. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled, and his name was Mephibosheth. One verse there. Oh, we can't leave him there, but we'll come back to him later. Verse 5, Rechab and Banan, the sons of Rimon the Berite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. He's having a nap, poor king. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some weight, and they stabbed him in the stomach, and then they slipped away. Now, what they're trying to do is rid David of the problem of Ishbosheth. Yes? So they then go back and tell David, not only do they say he's dead and we killed him, but they bring him his head. Yeah. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to take your life. Notice all those use of the word your. Yeah. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David responds, as surely as the Lord lives, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziglag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and in his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David what? Gave an order. And again, they're killed. Interesting, they cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it where? In Abner's tomb. So the two guys, Ishbosheth and Abner, are now buried in the same place. And the messengers are regarded with total disdain. Note, it is highly dangerous to assume the wishes of a king. In fact, I think it's highly dangerous to assume, full stop. Yes? One of my training mantras in counselling is assume nothing, check everything. Yeah? Ishbosheth is now out of the way. Too many messengers have already died as a result of thoughtless acts intended to try and ingratiate themselves into the king's good graces. Okay. Whizzing over to chapter 5, David now becomes king over Israel and Judah. Here we have the first scenario of where the two nations are joined together. There is a united monarchy. It's only under David and Solomon, briefly, that those two ever truly came together. But here's the start. Let's pick it up at verse 1. 
chapter 5, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a compact, um, like a covenant with them, at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. He was 30 years old when he became king. Jesus was 30 when he started his ministry. Yeah? And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Remember last week we talked about the anointing gap. The point from where he was told he was going to be king to this point has been 22 and a half years. Now, David has an agenda. The first part of the agenda is to subdue his enemies. He's been battling them in fulfillment of the task that the whole nation had left incomplete on entering the promised land. And this one item on the agenda would protect the nation militarily. Yeah? Second item on the agenda, he needed to subdue these enemies to unify the nation. It is tragic, but very often when you have an external enemy, you get a united country. Yeah, and that's what he was doing. But the next thing, he wanted to unify the nation spiritually by building a temple and hopefully abolished any idols. Really, really great plans there. However, on hearing that David had become king over the two nations, guess who comes back into play? Our dear friends, the Philistines. <sighs> so, here we go again. David decides if the Philistines are going to attack, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, chapter 6. There's a lot in this, so I'm going to read the whole lot. So bear with me. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all, and he and his men set out from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, the Abinadab is a priest, remember, were guarding the new cart with the ark of God in it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might. David is a composer, remember, and when you get a worship leader leading with all his might, that is some worship. With songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. They've got the whole band out. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. What's he trying to do? Protect it from falling. The Lord's anger burned against Yuzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Yuzah and to this day, the place it called Perez Yuzah, which technically means Yuzah's explosion. David was afraid of the Lord that day, though, and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. 
Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and it remained there for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. That's Obed-Edom. David was told this. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken how much? Six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Well, that's a really big, long journey, isn't it? Six steps. And it goes on, and he gets the Ark of the Covenant back. As long as every few steps, they're either sacrificing or praising. Read the whole chapter for yourself. It's astonishing. A few questions. We're running about five minutes over. Is that okay? Okay. Not possible at the moment. Thanks, Evie. Okay. Thank you for all you do, Evie. Bless you. So, we could have traffic and limited coffee. I mean, crumbs. Okay. Begs the question how should you handle holy objects? It's dangerous to handle holy things you're not prepared for. Uzzah lost his life because merely trying to protect it was called an irreverent act. Sounds harsh, but God had laid down very strict rules for who can touch the ark. If you break it, whoa. Excessive praise and worship and sacrifice to move that ark back. He was not taking any more chances. Be very careful, though, about criticizing those whose praise might be different to yours. Michael saw him praying exuberantly. Yes, he was wearing a linen ephod, which was technically for the priests. But he just praised and praised and praised. And what does she say? Verse... Yeah, here we go. When David returned home to bless his household... Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servant as any vulgar fellow would. Now, he's not naked, but he's just not got all of his kingly regalia. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ooh. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified. Watch out, Michael. I'm going to be worse than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. If that's what it took to get the Ark of the Covenant back, that's what he'd do. But by the slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. Very harsh. Can you give me one more minute before we break? In chapter 7, David has a plan. He's already living in a wonderful palace. But he has a plan. And he decides in chapter 7 that he is going to build God a temple. Look at the few services. After the king was settled in the palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies, so there's the first agenda sorted out, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of siege, and the ark of God remains in a tent. That is the tabernacle. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. 
Really? Okay. Go ahead. God is with you. But Nathan has not asked God. What does God say? God tells him that he had not demanded anything other than the tabernacle. God himself is going to provide a place for my people Israel. In other words, I'm going to build it, not you. David will not be the one to build it. However, one of David's children will build the temple. And the throne of David will be established forever. What would your response to those statements have been if you were a king? Which bit would you remember? Sorry? The last one, the throne of David will be established forever. Right. I think, Kirsten, you're being very nice and very generous. I think I would have homed in on, I'm not going to be able to build it. But I'm king. I've got the wherewithal. I should be able to. In fact, Kirsten is absolutely right, though I think, humanly, I would have been a bit miffed. He has been told that God is going to establish that throne forever. I'm going to leave you with that picture and we'll come back to it after we've had coffee. I'm sorry we're a bit behind time this morning, people. Thank you. Coffee is already at the back. <laughs>